Uh, welcome to Mirror Finish, the official podcast of Great Lakes Stainless, episode 20. This is Paul, Travis, and Mike. And in this episode, we had Fraser Kane, who is the publisher of Universe Today and the co-author of the Universe Today Ultimate Guide to Viewing the Cosmos, Everything You Need to Know to Become an Amateur Astronomer. Um, the other story behind it is that he came on, or I've been listening to his podcasts um, that he co-hosts with Dr. Pamela Gay called Astronomy Cast. And uh, I've listened to that since the very first episode 13 years ago. And he was promoing the book on the podcast and said that he would come on anybody's podcast to promote it. And I didn't believe him, so I emailed him, and he agreed to do it, which shocked everybody, I think. Uh, one note, something that, that happened, we did it through Zoom video conferencing, and I had never done that before. And through my ignorance and other technological issues, we only were able to record his side. So what the format of this is going to be is... You're going to hear his answers with my narration. I'm just going to go back and listen to it and plug in uh, like the questions we asked and the topics we covered. So it's going to be a little bit of a different format just to kind of fix it, but still get the message across. And he talked for, I mean, the vast majority yeah, of, of it anyway. We didn't have a lot to add. No. No, I'm pretty. In fact, I'm pretty sure he actually recorded the whole thing and just went out and took out our part of the audio and said, <laughs> "I don't know, guys. Technical error. It didn't record." Yeah, there you yeah, go. yeah. So just put my voice on there. <laughs> That's right. That's all. Nobody's, uh, nobody's wants to hear you guys. No, well, trust me. I've been doing this for a long time. And <laughs> yeah, just just me. Uh, so uh, so yeah, that's what that's what you'll hear. Um, and uh, we are. Are we still hiring? Do we get a CDL? Driver? Uh, we did. Uh, we we did. did find a driver. Yes, thankfully. Okay. So good. Good. Um, so, yeah, I haven't checked uh, the website recently. I'm not sure if we still got positions up, but I think like we said before, if you have welding experience, pop on in. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, welding experience or just any experience whatsoever, or just come in, fill yeah. in that. Uh, and so the website is GreatLakesStainless.com. I'm not saying the www dot anymore. Just went through that. Last uh, <laughs> last intro. I'm, just like, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to date myself. I mean, I do anyway, but not not that way. HTTP S <laughs> colon backslash backslash www dot. I should throw in one of those uh, the dial up tone. So visit the website. Click on the careers tab. Check out what positions are open. Um, and then mirrorfinish at greatlakestainless.com is the email. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram. And if you really want to help us out, go review us. Five stars, obviously, you know, because it's, perf- it's, it's perfect. You know? Just give us the stars. Five stars. Uh, review it. it uh, positive was it, reviews. Was it, bad, was it a bad company that uh, wrote, give me, back, give me back my bullets? That was Leonard Skinner. How dare you, sir? Oh, my God. No. Leonard Skinner wrote, give me back my bullets? Travis, I can't believe you're going to ask him that question. I mean, I had a mullet when I was a kid. I know what Leonard Skinner wrote. Yeah. The rat tail, too? No, I, uh, some, for some reason, my mom was always against the rat tail. (laughs) For some reason? But, but not the mullet. Do you need a reason? (laughs) Could have been the, just basically the whole, the whole deal, the whole rat tail deal. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with the rat tail. 
Did you like give yourself a rat tail in secret? Yeah. There it is. There it, it is, right there. Leonard Skinner. Skinner. I think Travis got a little offended, Mike. I had to learn this song, so. Ah. Well, I stand corrected. What band were you in when you played it? Uh, Super 77. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we never ended up playing it out, but there's one that we were kind of learning for a while. Yeah. We started saying, we should do this song. How many gigs did you end up doing? So, a few. I could be, like, I could be wrong uh, twice in short order, but I heard you You know what they're referring to. Give me back my bullets. I don't. No. It's their bullets on the billboard chart. That's what they want back. The bullets on the... The bullets on the billboard chart. Really? That's what I heard. I have no idea. But I also thought it was bad company, so take it with a grain of salt. Oh, okay. Is it like just like rebellion against the mainstream? Is that the kind of the idea there? Or? No, they want their they want to get their back to number one on the Billboard chart. Oh. oh, I clearly have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, you may not, you may still not know it because I may just be pulling that stuff out of my <laughs> ass, Paul. It is. So. This song is about the Bullets Billboard chart. Uses it to signify there a song go. is moving quickly up the chart. Oh. Song is about regaining dominance on the music charts. Yeah, I want to be back to number one. What, what so that one? relates. The reason they came up is because give us back our stars. Yeah. We want our, oh, yeah. we want our five stars. Oh, I, right. I think we've, we've got, last time I looked, we had solid fives on uh, iTunes. Yeah, we just want more. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because they keep, say... Keep uh, them coming. I'll be nice on that. Please. Please. Oh. What year was that written? Um... I'm not sure what year it was written, but it was saying if a song's if they say a song is number twelve with a bullet, yeah, it means it's number twelve, but it's probably it's going to be climbing. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, a little peek into the music industry. Mm-hmm. Stars are important. Keep them coming in. I think we're up to seven or eight. I haven't had an email in a while. I'm kind of bummed. I'm trying to think of what we can do to incentivize people to email. Reply. I got nothing for them. I reply to everyone. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. You bought? Yeah. Checking. I have nothing for them. No. Start offering merch. <laughs> merch. Merch. Uh, Swag. Yeah. 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 GLS koozie or mirror finish podcast t-shirt. We do not have those. No, by we the don't. Way. <laughs> An email will not get you a mirror podcast t-shirt. No, not because we don't want to give you one. We just don't have them. They don't exist. Yeah. A hundred requests for them. We might get a short order. Got to have a hundred requests for them. Well, we are. We're over seventeen hundred downloads or plays Maybe. now. So what? So Cherryland got how many in like three years or something? It's like 30... Yeah, well, we figured out the we figured out the math. We're uh, we're behind. Yeah, we figure how many? Well, we're about on pa- on track on to track match their to match their listens over the three year period of for who's Cherryland Electrics podcast? Yeah. Who podcast? That's what I thought. It's like what? Well, I'm sure people are like really like seeing this podcast. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. Right. Yeah, I was about to say it's like who wants to that's listen what, to a that's power one thing. I, that's what I just. The nicest thing uh, about throwing stones from a glass house is you can see your targets. <laughs> <laughs> Just to see them. Build. You yeah. See them. Yeah. 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 I was about to say, like, who wants to listen to a podcast from a power company? But, well, <laughs> yeah. turn that around pretty easily. Uh, but, yeah, I guess we were, we're on part of match. They had like, I don't know, 3,000 or so in three years or something like that. And mm-hmm. So we're a little ahead. We've been doing this since April. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know what this podcast has? Hmm. Bullet. Bullet. It's got a bullet. It's got a bullet. Number. It's on the way up. Three hundred eighty thousand. Yeah. Bullet. <laughs> bullet. Yeah. We cracked iTunes top five hundred thousand podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like every every episode I listen to now of any podcast is adver- there's advertising for at least one or two 
new podcast. It's a really cool. just blowing up. I mean, if people thought it was blowing up before, it's blowing up now even more. It's crazy. Everybody's getting one. That's, that's fine. I mean, there's room for it. It's not like there's a yeah. limit. No. You know, and then there's some that will come and go. Yeah. Not us. We're here forever, though. Yeah. <laughs> Mike laughs. Uh, oh. Are you looking up how many podcasts there are? Oh, are you looking up the the iTunes page? Yeah. We got seven reviews still. Eight. Oh. Thank you. There's the bullet. Right. There's the bullet. There's the bullet. There's the bullet. <laughs> number eight. Email me. <laughs> Send you a picture of me giving you the thumbs up. It'll be safe for work. I promise. <laughs> It'll actually be a thumb. Five stars. You can say anything you want as long as there's five stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, here is episode 20 with Fraser Kane. with me thanking him for doing the interview and asking him where we could find his book. No problem. Happy to do it. You you took me up on my offer. Yeah, it's I mean anywhere books are sold. I, I mean, you know, definitely Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the regular places, but it's funny. I found it in my local bookstore here in small town Canada. So, uh it's you know, that's I guess one of the real advantages of going with a distrib- you know, with a old school uh publishing company is they have those distribution networks, so um, I keep being surprised at where I'm finding the book. So, uh, so kudos to them. Then we asked him if this was his first book, or did he have any other publishing experience, and where the idea for this book came from. No, not exactly. Um, uh, I wrote a bunch of books like 20 years ago. I used to work, uh, used to want to be in the role-playing game industry, like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. So uh, I wrote a bunch of of game books for a bunch of companies uh, and then sort of went into space journalism instead and so sort of stopped that career. And vowed to never write another book because anyone who's written a book knows just how difficult the process is and uh and then about uh i guess about 10 years ago or so um we published a a book with one of our writers on universe today and we self-published it and it was sort of everything that you could see in the night sky uh throughout the entire year written with uh, tammy plotner who was our our observing journalist back in the day and then um, I guess about three years ago or so, Dave Dickinson and I had, he had been maintaining for the last couple of years this better and better uh, article about how to, uh, like what what you could expect to see over the course of the year. And uh, two years ago, we sort of took it to the next level and really wrote an ebook that we distributed for free through Universe Today. And that was a practice for us to then actually do a book deal with uh, with our current publisher. So we had been leading up to it and practicing and learning what was involved to go into actually writing a book. And then, uh, you know, and then we actually did the did the proper book deal for, for this year. We asked him what the differences were between going through an established publisher and self-publishing. Well, it's, I mean, when you go, when you do self-publishing, obviously everything is on you, right? That you have to get the printing done. You have to figure out the distribution networks. You have to get your ISBN number. You have to do the writing. You have to do the editing. You have to pick the photographs. You have to do the layout. It's a lot of work. 
And at the same time, if you're in a position that you're trying to do a book, chances are you also have a lot of other things to do. Like if you're considering it, you probably have a lot of other things on your plate as well. Um, and so for me, uh, you know, we will probably do some self more self-publishing in the future, but I knew that I didn't have the bandwidth to, to do all those other tasks at the same time. And Page Street had done book deals with two of our other writers before, Nancy Atkinson and, um, uh, and Bob. And we had, uh, you know, we knew, Bob, Bob King, um, we knew that, that they were good to work with. They had been really honorable in dealing with those writers. And so I felt pretty comfortable in, in doing this deal with them. And so I pitched the idea to them. I pitched the idea to, be, idea to David. Uh, who's the writer, and he was cool with it, and we sort of brought the whole machine together. Were you always into astronomy, and what got you into it? Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I had always been into astronomy, even as a uh, kid. Um, like, uh, when I was like four years old, I got a copy of Our Universe this from National Geographic. and had these beautiful pictures of space, and I just dog-eared the, the book. Um, uh, when I was... Uh, you know, I went and I saw the first space shuttle launch on TV with my father. I went and would go, we would go and see the meteor showers every year. So I was always really into astronomy as a kid. And then when I was uh, in my teens, I got, um, actually bought my own first telescope when I was about 14 years old and learned the night sky and I organized star parties. So, so I was really setting up. And then it's funny, I took the journalism class in my high school and reported on space and astronomy uh, news, things that you could observe in the night sky uh, over the course of the year. And it's funny, I took a, I took this detour when I became an adult. I went to engineering uh, at the University of British Columbia and went into computer science, actually. And it was only sort of maintaining universe today on, as a hobby on the side that I sort of came back around to it in my late 20s. And and then, but knew that that was all I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And so now I'm just nearing 20 years of, astro of, of Universe Today. I think we're doing 13 years of Astronomy Cast now. And uh, I'm still having as much fun every day now as I did in the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up on a small island uh, off the west coast of Canada called Hornby Island. So I now live on the bigger island. I live on Vancouver Island, but I grew up on an even smaller island that's, that's just off the coast of Vancouver Island. How are the skies where you live? Are they dark enough to get really good views? Oh, well, it's uh, back then it was perfectly dark skies, like as dark as you could hope for. And and that, you know, I'm, I think that that matters a lot for people getting into astronomy as because your first times, you know, you need to go outside and look up and see the Milky Way and see the stars. And when you go to cities and you lose those stars, you lose this connection with the with the cosmos. And so for me now, you know, I can still see the Milky Way from my backyard. There's more light pollution in the in the city that I live in. But if I want to get some dark skies, it's a 10 minute drive in almost any direction. And then I'm back to uh, almost no light pollution. So I, I, uh, it's so sad to me that people live in places where they have to spend two hours to drive to a place that gives them that they can even see the Milky Way. It's it's heartbreaking. Here we were explaining to him where we were in Michigan and that we were around the forty fifth parallel. 
And you'll even get some auroras that far north. If uh, you know, if you go out at the right time and go look to the north, you can see auroras, which is great. You know, a lot of people in the in the lower states don't get a chance to to see them, but you guys near the border can still. I mean, you're essentially at the same. You're probably this about the same that that I am. I'm at the 49th parallel. I'm not sure what what you guys are at or the 50th parallel. So you're not that far. Well, I took it to the next level. I was down in Australia in the summertime for a, a conference. And uh, in the conference city that we were in, the Milky Way was better than anything I'd ever seen in the light pollution of this of this town. And then my wife and I took a road trip where we went north uh, up the coast, and it was just it was mind bending. I've never you know like I thought I had good dark skies and I thought I knew what I was looking at, but to see, to look straight up and see the Milky Way right overhead, there's a whole other levels of Milky Way that you can see. And people tell me it gets even better if you go into the interior of, of Australia, although I can't even imagine better than, than what I saw. Here, Fraser is explaining to us what you can see in the Southern Hemisphere that you can't see in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, yeah, that was the that was my favorite part. We were doing this conference, and uh, I told people, you know, I've never seen the Omega Cluster. I've never seen the large and small Magellanic Clouds. I've never seen... Alpha Centauri. I've never seen all of these things. And uh, it was awesome because they, they did this star party. They set up all these telescopes. And as I was walking around, everyone was like, Fraser, come over here. I've got the Omega Cluster. So I thought like, I saw it like five times, which was great. I asked him when he first met David Dickinson, the co-author of the book. Well, David, man, I, I have no idea how we met David originally. Uh, Nancy Atkinson, who was our senior editor at the time, uh, brought on a lot of writers who were working with us. And uh, so David, was, I think, was one of the writers. You know, he had offered to do some some writing at the time and, and has been writing articles with us for, for years and years now. I actually don't know how we first met. I was telling him how much we appreciate him taking the time to come on our podcast. That's a, this is the trick. If there's anyone you want to talk to, wait till they've published a book and then they're they're easy prey. Yeah, anybody. It works for me too. Trust me. Yeah. Some of the coolest people that we get a chance to interview, it all comes down to have they just published a book? Are they trying to promote their book? Then come on the show. We asked him what the original inspiration was to make the book. Well, yeah, I mean, okay, so I mean, there's a pile of books that I really loved that that taught me the night sky as a, as I was becoming an amateur astronomer. Uh, And, and they sort of showed me what was possible this mixture of a of a beautiful coffee table book, with a lot of practical advice. But but getting into the hobby has really changed. Uh, there's a lot of technology that have come into play, both on the internet and um, and on the uh, like with the telescopes themselves, and a lot of our smartphones and stuff. So so it's sort of a different age, and and a lot of people are really pushing the boundaries of of what's possible. Uh, a, there's a lot of great astrophotographers that use phones. You know, they've they've got a clip. They put their phone up to their telescope, and they take some amazing pictures of. Uh, we've got one picture, I think, in the book of of the entire solar system done with fo- with a phone, and so so there's that. Um, yeah, no, you would you would probably have a hard time picking out which one it is, but um, and so there was all these pieces, right? That that there was that there's this new technology, there's new methods of collaboration. The the amateur astrophotography that's happening right now is absolutely stunning, and and I get a chance to see this because I I maintain our our Instagram page and I see, you know, I hand over the keys to our 
to our page to a new photographer every day. And so I'm seeing this just amazing, stunning photography that, that I don't think anybody's ever seen before. And so I wanted to bring all of these pieces together. I want, we, you know, David with his really practical writing advice, we collaborated a lot in talking about what are the new technologies and methodologies and stuff that we wanted to bring together. And I reached out to dozens, I forget the exact number, something like 75 different astrophotographers to contribute photos for the book so that I could show people like you don't, you know, a lot of the books out there, they rely on the same Hubble Space Telescope pictures, which are wonderful, but not everybody has access to the Hubble Space Telescope to take a picture, right? I wanted to show people that, it, you know, with practice and with ability and with technique, um, and some gear for sure, uh, you can produce really stunning pictures of the night sky. And so that's all of the pieces that came together for us to make to make this book. We were commenting on how great all the astrophotography looks and that it's really impressive that you can get some of those images from a cell phone. Yeah, and there's a picture in there of the, like people don't even realize, there's a picture in there of the International Space Station that uh, uh, one of our photographers took, and it's stunning. You can see the the solar panels and the, um, you know, the, all of the parts of the of the space station. And you can actually see a lot of this stuff with your own eyeballs. You know, when the space station is going overhead, you pull out a pair of binoculars and you can see the little TIE fighter shape of the, of the space station. It's always funny to me when people deny the reality that, um, that these things exist, you know. I'm like, pick something easier to deny because you can just go at any time you want. See the space station go overhead. You can, you can make out the shape with your own eyeballs and note that it matches the, uh, you know, what's going on. So, no, it's, it's a funny thing to me. But, yeah, beautiful stuff. We asked him if he saw the video that was taken from the International Space Station of the rocket launching from, I think it was Central Russia, and uh, just how amazing it looked compared to what we've seen in the movies. This is almost even better. And you can really see, I mean, just that, that perspective from, from an, an astronaut now taking uh, pictures of this, this rocket launch. Yeah, absolutely amazing stuff. We noticed that the book had a heavy focus on astrophotography, and we're wondering if he was into photography before he was into astronomy and uh, what his um, influences were as far as photography. Uh, yeah, well, so my father um, is a photographer, my sort of, like, was a professional photographer is a is, I don't know, he's, he's retired from it now, but, but he took pictures for various local newspapers and portrait work and passport photo work and, and really the, you know, put food on the table in our house through the money that his photography made. And so I, from a very early age, recognized, you know, I spent time in the dark room. I recognized that photography was a legitimate art form and, and profession. So I had always been fascinated by photography. But at the same time, you know, my father casts a long shadow um, over my own photography work. And so I was perfectly happy to not try and follow in his footsteps. You know, I went into the into writing as opposed to to photography. But but with with astronomy, the two really go hand in hand, and uh, we have been doing a lot more work with uh, like a, I guess it was about five six years ago. I started to work with a bunch of astronomers to show off the night sky, where we would do these live star parties. I don't know if you remember these, uh, where people would hook up telescopes to 
to the internet and then we would kind of put on a show where we would take requests and we would show what was going on in the night sky at the time and I learned a lot about photography astrophotography through through that and and then got a better camera on my own and have been dabbling but I haven't gone beyond dabbling uh, the most recent thing is we're now bringing these star parties back. Uh, we've got a much better setup now, thanks to our friends at Oceanside Photo and Telescope. They set up these amazing remote observatories where we're able to to just take really great pictures of of objects in the night sky with really short exposures, like 15 second exposures, 30 second exposures, and so it's almost like I get to be a DJ. Um, for the night sky and show show people stuff like take requests and you know over the course of an hour hour and a half we can look at 30 40 different objects one after the other so so that's been game changing and we're still trying to digest how to make this into a, a you know package this to make it a little more accessible but um so i've uh i've learned a lot more about astrophotography through the work with the people on our Instagram page with the work on this book and with me actually personally trying my my hand. My wife is also a, a nature photographer, so that's really helped kind of having someone who I can bounce sort of photography nerdery around with, right? And we talk about lenses and camera bodies and, you know, and she's a much better photographer than I am. So it's uh, it's worked out really well. Here we asked if there were any similarities or what similarities there were between uh, nature photography and the normal photography that that we do in our everyday lives in astrophotography, uh, and if not, you know what what were some of the differences? Uh, n- no, um, it's funny they're they're actually incredibly different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, you need a camera and you need to have lenses, and so you. But the but the actual like for my wife, she specializes in in macro photography. And, and so her camera system is equipped to get as absolutely close to the subject that she can to provide as much illumination. So she's got a really complicated, wacky flash setup to be able to, to provide this really flat illumination on these very shiny creatures that she's taking pictures of. And and then capture that moment while they are doing interesting things. So she has to take a very, you know, it's a, it's a hundredth, a thousandth of a second moment that she's trying to capture with a exact with a, and that's that's precisely it. Is is her challenge is is the depth of field, and so they, she's trying to push the the depth of field on her lens to its absolute maximum and yet still bring in enough light to be able to capture the, the moment. And it's this constant balance. And so she's always looking for light sensitivity. She's always looking for, um, you know, something that's going to make her lens faster, but also get allow her to get closer and closer to, to the subject. And while, uh, well, what we're doing with astrophotography is we're looking to capture as much light as possible. We're trying to get as little noise as we can on a very long exposure um uh wide field of view uh looking to track the image so it's so it's it's surprising now her camera is a lot better at astrophotography than mine is um but it's uh but it's because it's so much better sort of at everything but um (laughs) but but it's but it's funny how different they are and how little overlap there actually is that at the end of the day obviously we're taking pictures but the what she has to go through to take her picture is is really different from what i have to do to to take my picture and what the best astrophotographers are doing to take to take their pictures and it's the funny things uh, and even with my father 
you know, my father really cut his teeth at being a street photographer. So his favorite place to do is, is to go out on the street and take candid shots of people living their lives in, in cities. And, and for him, it's a completely different setup, right? Like my dad, I got a chance to shadow him one day when we were in, in Europe. And he sets his lens for the the distance that he's planning on shooting for the day sets his focus sets his depth of field sets his you know sets his f-stop exposure for what he thinks the day is going to be like has no flash on his camera and then he just walks around and when he sees an event unfolding that matches what he's looking for at the right distance he just quietly raises the camera takes his picture puts the camera back down and he's like a ninja and you get these really candid shots of people just being themselves in the in the middle of the city and totally different situation. So I think that's the fascinating part when you think about landscape photography and portrait photography and wedding photography and astrophotography. If you get into photography, that's just the beginning. They're each one of those pathways requires different technology, different setup, different skill sets and post-production and that's what I think makes the hobby so fascinating is you may think you've mastered one tiny component of it but actually the whole hobby is open for you in all other ways. Mike kind of took over here because he knows a lot more about photography than either Travis or myself and he was asking about some of the biggest challenges uh, when uh, uh, doing astrophotography. Yeah it's a gigantic challenge um, in fact it really is the it is is that challenge that you're describing is the one that really controls technically almost everything that you're doing is the you need to keep the camera stable during the exposure of your of your picture and a lot of the pictures that you take the length of the exposure that you can do if you just got a set tripod and you're going to take a nice picture of the milky way say you calculate everything based on what is the longest amount of time that you can leave your exposure your your aperture open until you get trailing of the stars and so generally with a you know with a really wide field of view you can go maybe 30 seconds at most before these tiny little star trails start to show up in in everything that you're doing because as you said the earth is turning uh, you know, you are, you're smearing. And if you, you can see those really great star trail pictures, which look like these circles, because people will, will go after that effect, right? They'll leave their camera exposure open for five minutes at a time, and then do another one, then do another one, then stack up all of these star trails that they get. But if you're trying to do like a really nice, clear picture of the Milky Way, or you're trying to do a picture of, <clears throat> you know, some, deep sky object you need to track the night sky with your camera and so that generally involves a piece of hardware uh there's tell there's tripods that'll do this you can you know bolt uh your camera onto this tripod that is angled at the at the the tilt that the earth is tilted at and then either you can manually have like a little knob that you slowly turn as the you know that at a rate that you know is going to match the movement of the earth or better yet you let a computer do this um you know you have a some kind of robotic thing that's turning um or uh and then they those mounts just get fancier and fancier as you go as the precision that you're trying to go after gets smaller or that you know the objects are smaller, the control is far more important because if you're off for a microsecond, then the star trails will kick in and your photo will look terrible. And so people will spend far more on the mount that they use for their telescope than they spend on the telescope itself. You know, it's if you're gonna whatever amount you're spending on your telescope, 
be prepared to spend double that on a good mount to make sure that you get razor tack sharp images because if you get any drift any blur any jiggle in your image the whole image is worthless and you have to start again mike asked some question here and i wasn't i don't even remember what he said some nerdy photography term and uh, so him and fraser kind of nerded out over photography for a little bit yeah 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 so i mean it depends on the on the camera that you're using right so um you definitely need to to be really careful about that uh you can uh you know, like you want to use a remote shutter when you're taking your picture. A lot of the new uh, DSLRs, I mean, you definitely have an image with the with the shutter slap right at the end, but it's not too bad because it's sort of like as the camera was shutting down its 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 aperture, then you're done the picture anyway. Um, uh, a lot of them, you know, but a lot of them you can configure in a way to sort of open and start it, its exposure without necessarily having it slap open um and you know and then oscillate so that's the that's the challenge and a lot of the new mirrorless uh dslrs they don't use that and they can just take their picture and then and shut it down at the end so yeah a lot of people are switching to these mirrorless cameras now but you need to minimize every part of contamination you need to have a remote shutter where you you know you press a button at the end of a wire and that opens up the the camera shutter you need to have a nice stable footing that your camera's on every piece of possible um noise and vibration uh, you know we were with, with a big telescope we were taking a bunch of pictures and i had i all of my pictures were coming out a little bit blurry there was like a little bit of of jiggle and and i realized that it was because i was trying to take my picture too quickly after i had slewed the telescope and so the camp the telescope had gotten to the new position but it was still like a little bit wobbling afterwards so i put in a delay and that helped but then also i realized that the wind speed that was around was actually causing jiggles in the in the camera so i had to just wait for the winds to die down before i could take my picture or you know i knew that if my if i was going to be pointing the telescope in the direction of the wind then I was, you know, then the telescope was acting like a scoop and the, and the wind was going to be pushing the telescope around. But if you were downwind, then the wind would go around the telescope and it would be a lot better. So you kind of started to realize, I'm like, okay, the wind is up, it's coming from the north, so I can only really take pictures to the south tonight to minimize that that wind. So you just experience all this stuff and it's, 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 it's very much like science, right? Because you are trying to find every possible source of contamination in your experiment and and remove it. And in this case, the you know, the experiment is you taking a good picture of the night sky. But it is a, you know, it is a total rabbit hole. It's a lot of fun to, to start and take these really awful pictures and then learn step by step each piece of the puzzle to improve until you're taking pictures that you're reasonably happy with. And again, I am, you know, I rank amateur compared to the the quality of the photographers who have been sharing their images with us. I asked him about the misconception that you would see color uh, in space like you see in space pictures if you were actually up uh, in space. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a big one, right? Like people think that when you see those amazing pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope, you see these beautiful 
diffuse nebulae and all of these amazing colors and you think, oh, it'd be so cool if I could get in a spaceship and I could fly to this nebula and look out the window and see the stuff for real like I see in Star Trek or Battlestar Galactica or, you know, things like that. And the reality is that you wouldn't see that at all. Um, when you have an image from the Hubble Space Telescope, the telescope is capturing photons from this object for days, uh, hours, days, weeks, months, that that it is, you know, the human eyeball, our, our meat cameras, they dump out the photons every 30 seconds. And so you can never take a longer exposure image with your eyeballs than for than you can for 30 seconds. So just we don't have the exposure. And so if you got really close to the Orion Nebula, say, you wouldn't even notice you wouldn't even be able to see it. you might see this bright diffuse patch in one region of the sky but that's about it and keep in mind right we are here in the middle of the milky way and yet you have to have really dark skies before you can see the milky way itself so so that's the first issue is just the brightness issue so you you really you know, I mean, obviously, if you got close to Mars, Mars would look good. If you got close to the moon, the moon would look good. But but for a lot of those deep sky objects, galaxies and nebulae and, and things like that, you really they wouldn't look any better if you got closer. Um, but the second challenge is the reality that when telescopes are taking pictures, they're often taking them using false color. So the Hubble Space Telescope will be will has filters that go in front of it. it's got like 130 filters. And each one of those filters is designed to capture a very specific frequency of light. And they do this for scientific purposes. So they will, they will image say, the light that cold neutral hydrogen gives off and oxygen gives off and sulfur gives off. And then they've got these three readings and they can say, Oh, well, here are all the oxygen regions in this nebula, here are all the sulfur regions, etc. And then you can in Photoshop take one of those you can take the hydrogen one and call that red. And then you can take the oxygen one, you can call that blue. And then you can take the sulfur one, you can call that green, and you can put those three together and call that a color picture. But it's but it's not really a color picture. So the right, so you've got these three colors, you're looking at, you know, you turn red and red is hydrogen, blue is oxygen, green is sulfur, you put these things together in Photoshop, and that creates a an image. Um, but you could just as much use three different shades of infrared, or you could use three different shades of ultraviolet, or sometimes people are, you know, some of the images that you see are the they're using uh, x rays, and they're putting that in purple, and they're putting gamma radiation, and then that's in blue, and then they're putting infrared, and then that's in red, and then they're turning that into a color into a into an image. So a lot of the time, you know, you can you can absolutely produce true color images of what things would look like. You know, you just need to capture all the red photons and then apply them to the red channel and capture all the blue photons and apply them to the blue channel and all the green photons and apply them to the green channel. And there are filters that will let you do this as well. But in many cases, the most beautiful pictures that you see in this in our book and just out there on the internet have a tremendous amount of artistic license from the from the photographer and the person who's doing the the post image processing the the there are things that are giving off the the light 
And some astrophotographers really pride themselves on trying to make the most realistic image that they can, one that best matches the, um, the, the actual wavelengths that are being given off. But uh, other times people are really enjoy the, it more of the artistic side where they're trying to see how can I take these really cool uh, regions and turn them into a picture that's very beautiful to look at and and at the end of the day our eyeballs can never gather photons for as long as a camera can so we can never see this stuff in in the true way that that they show uh, so that's i mean it's just important to know that that when you're looking at this astrophotography it's there is technology at work to help us see these pictures and an artistic license to to show off what these you know to show the pictures in a way that that perhaps you can't see with your own eyeballs but it doesn't mean that they're not real it just means that you need to you know i just just always want people to disclose just explain the technique on how you made the picture i asked them to elaborate on how the same object in space can look different depending on which wavelength we're looking at it in yeah yeah and that's exactly it right like like the human eyeball can really only see from, you know, a very narrow portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. We can see from red to violet, right? And that's actually a small chunk. There's, you know, there's all the radio waves and microwaves and infrared radiation on the one side, and there's the ultraviolet and x-rays and gamma radiation on the other side. And a lot of the the actual wavelengths of the light of the universe are in that x-ray radiation. It's the big regions of, of hot gas where stars are forming and these diffuse clouds in between galaxies and stuff. A lot of this are giving off radiation in the x-rays. And we as we're here on Earth, gladly we, don't, we can't see them because we would be getting irradiated if we, if we could. Um, so it's good that the Earth's atmosphere protects us from this stuff but also it means that we can't see it and any even if we could our eyeballs can't see it you know you can't when you go, go get an x-ray you don't see the beam of x-rays that are illuminating your hand or your you know your teeth uh but they're there and uh and the right machine can actually see them so so we build these tools i mean astronomers build all these different kinds of tools to be able to see the universe as it truly is in the wavelengths that we just can't perceive. I asked him to talk about the time that they accidentally discovered a supernova during a star party. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, we're never going to live this down. Uh, we were doing one of our star parties and David was there and I was there and, uh, we were observing different galaxies and we got to this one galaxy, uh, which was renowned as a galaxy where a lot, you know, a lot of star forming was going on in this galaxy. And a lot of people had, had discovered supernovae in this galaxy before. And, um, one of the people who was who was in the show with us said, "Oh, this is you know a very famous galaxy. There's a lot of supernovae in it. Now there isn't one there right now, but but there can be. And it turns out there was. And there was. And we were showing off the picture, and there was a supernova in the picture, um, but we didn't know the galaxy well enough to to catch it." And then the next morning, there was an announcement that a team of uh, amateur astronomers had discovered a supernova in this galaxy and we were 
And we were talking to each other. And we we're like, wait a minute. We were looking at that galaxy last night live with an audience. And so we went back. Yeah, and we went back. And sure enough, there was a there was a supernova in that that you know was right there, bright, no problem, totally could see it as a star. And um, and from that point on, uh, David Dickinson vowed to never miss another one. And so every time we would we would bring up a new galaxy, he would be like, hold on, just checking. He would be looking at a at a static image of the galaxy and then comparing it just to make sure there wasn't any extra stars in there that night because it was, uh, yeah, it was a bit of a, it was, a, it was fun. I mean, you know, but it would have been nice to have discovered a, a supernova. That would have been fun too. I asked him if there was any other observations that stood out in his mind. This, this season, this observing season has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, we've had one of the first times in a long time where all the visible planets are were able to be seen with the unaided eye so you could see mercury right down near the near the horizon venus was a little higher than that jupiter saturn and of course we had mars really bright this season and so we did a star party as part of our 500th episode of astronomy cast and a bunch of our fans had set up telescopes for the star party and it was really wonderful to just sort of walk around there was probably 15 different telescopes set up in every different configuration so larger telescopes smaller telescopes ones that were all manual ones that were like a refractor where it's all lenses one where it's a refractor or sorry it's where it's a reflector where it's like got mirrors in it and it was wonderful to be able to experience all these different telescopes and how satisfying it is to be able to take this telescope you slew it around you see the object that you're trying to get at you know you see jupiter whatever get it in the eyepiece and there's the moons and the bands across the planet uh just a really wonderful time and and i always love to as much as i do a lot of work remotely and and as much as we're now starting to really rely on this technology uh, I really enjoy just going back and taking a telescope and swinging it around and and seeing what's up in the in the night sky and and looking at it with my own eyeballs. And my favorite thing is to be there when people experience this stuff for the first time. So um, we did uh, uh, my friend Paul Sutter and I. We did we do these astro tours where we take people on some exotic adventure and at the same time. Uh, show them the night sky. So we did uh, Iceland earlier this year. We just did the Caribbean, and we're just getting set to do um, uh, Costa Rica next. And Costa Rica? People give me a hard time the way I say it with my hilarious Canadian accent. Costa Rica, I think. Anyway, um, so we're doing Costa Rica in, in March. So we were on the Caribbean cruise, and we were on this ship, and a lot of the people that were with us had really never done any, any amateur uh, astronomy at all. And that's my roots, you know, like I go outside at night, and I look up and I see the stars. It, it, I know where I am, I know what things are happening, I know which objects are where and where everything is. And so I see so much more, I think, than a person who just like sees a bunch of stars, they don't really know, they don't have any perspective, right. And so and so it was really wonderful to be able to take a pair of binoculars, and to teach people some of the objects that they could see. And and, and they had never done it before, right? So we're, we're finding, we're looking at Jupiter, and we're seeing the moons, we're looking at Saturn, and we're seeing the rings, and we're looking at Andromeda, and, you know, showing them that these galaxies and teaching them you can see this stuff with your own eyes, and, and then a bunch of clusters and stuff. So it's, 
I think I find that just always endlessly fun. If we had a better city for this, I would totally be out there with the telescope doing sidewalk astronomy, which I think is one of the best things people can do where you just you set up a telescope and just wait for random people to walk by and go, you know, can I look through your telescope? And you're like, absolutely, check it out. And then you show people Saturn or Jupiter for the first time, and it blows their minds. And it is so satisfying to be there to watch their faces as they're seeing Saturn for the first time, you know, and seeing the rings. And it feels like this, this object is just jumping out of the eyepiece into your eyeballs. You've, you've seen it so many times on television and in pictures and, and, and stuff, but to actually see it sort of jiggling in the eyepiece as you as you look through the telescope is this just transformational experience. Everybody loves it. Nobody hates it, right? I asked him if he thought when people saw planets or distant objects, you know, up close through a telescope, if they would get a similar feeling that astronauts get with the overview effect. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting uh, comparison. I wonder. I'd love to. I'll next time I talk to an astronaut, I'll I'll, I'll pitch that to them and see what they think, because it is that. Well, I mean, I mean, with the astronauts, right? That I mean, maybe it's the reverse, because I think when an astronaut is up in space and they're looking down at Earth, they're realizing that the Earth is this single connected place that the borders that we've come to sort of obey don't really matter. That that everything is interconnected and you get this experience of like oneness. It's a very, apparently it's a very spiritual experience that astronauts have. While when you look at something like Saturn, you're sort of, you're, you're seeing this entire gigantic planet is this tiny little object. So it sort of makes you feel insignificant and small compared to this enormous universe as you realize the scope and and scale of of everything so uh, i wonder sort of uh, you know I, I would love to talk to an astronaut especially one who's done a lot of astronomy and sort of see if those things are connected that's that's really fascinating i'm i'm stoked now i want to talk to someone about it i asked him what he recommends people look at first or what he shows people first well, I mean, the you always go for the, you know, whatever are the bright objects that are in the sky that you can see. The moon is great. And you want to see the moon actually when it's a much smaller crescent. You don't want to look at the moon when it's full. Uh, the moon at full, the, the sunlight is falling flat on the moon. And so you don't get to see any of the craters. It's just like this bright ball. <laughs> um, but when the moon is like half illuminated you know, when you've got like a quarter moon, then you've got really good shadows that are going across the moon and you can really see all of the craters and, and stuff. And so in a powerful telescope, that just looks absolutely stunning. Both the terminator line, the point where you can see the, the shadow between the dark and the, and the light on the moon, but also along the edges, the limbs where you're looking at the, where the, like really where the background of the moon is, is space right you can see the the craters and the mountains and stuff on the on the surface of the moon so that's all absolutely fascinating if the moon is up then you look at it right but the and then as well as any of the of the planets uh jupiter and saturn are the best to look at mars if it's close uh, and you've got a pretty good telescope it can look really nice uh venus is in is very bland it but if it's it can go through these phases and so that's pretty cool to look at mercury is very boring uh not interesting to look at um so those are the those are the big highlights right and then if you if it's 
I mean, if you've got a solar telescope, then you're going to want to look at the sun. But then there are hundreds of fairly bright deep sky objects to look at. Um, and many of them look great, even under fairly light polluted skies, even with a fairly small telescope. I mean, my favorites are the globular clusters. Um, you know, there are dozens of them that you can see with a small telescope at different times of the year. And then some of the planetary nebula, I really enjoy uh, things like the ring nebula or the dumbbell nebula. I mean, they look really great, even just with, through the eyepiece. Some of the galaxies can be a little more disappointing because really that's when you really want to shift over into astrophotography to be able to see a lot of the fainter structures and objects in these in these galaxies. But but there are enough interesting things up every single night that you can keep your telescope busy uh, and showing people some of the stuff that's there to see. But that's where I mean that's really after a while you're like say there's 20 objects that you can look at with your telescope beyond that that's when a lot of people shift over into astrophotography if you still find yourself out there then you want to see these fainter objects you want to see this structure you want to see these you know some of these larger star forming regions that are fainter and that's where you need to switch over to to start taking pictures as opposed to just letting your eye see what it can see in the book he talks about someone who built a 70 inch telescope using a uh, mil u.s military surplus mirror uh, i think from a, a fallen satellite or something like that and so i asked him if if he had ever had the chance to uh, take a look through it no no i you know a 70 inch mirror is is pretty gigantic um you know the largest practical telescopes that i've had a chance to look through are on the sort of 24 inch scale um you know you can get a, a mirror ground for you for about say five thousand dollars that's that's about that scale it, but it's a it's a phenomenal size of of mirror but i don't really recommend that like you get this thing you know it's called aperture fever where you you want a bigger telescope a more sensitive telescope and because that allows you to see fainter objects, what things that were just these tiny little faint ghosts before now start to resolve in, in your telescope. But I think it's you don't really need that. I think, again, it's you go down the path of a better mount and a better camera system. And then you work with the telescope that you have to take really long exposure pictures and you can bring out a tremendous amount of detail even with the faintest objects so um so you don't have to go down that that pathway but for sure people do and uh, great <laughs> I, I don't have the the finances or the stomach to build something that monstrous and they're, they're also really unwieldy like you know, people build these gigantic telescopes that you need a stepladder to be able to climb up and be able to look into the eyepiece and you're going to see jupiter great but if you want to try and shift it to point at anything else, it's a lot of work. And to build a tracking system that will work on it is a lot of work. So better to have a smaller telescope that, that is just a lot more fun to use and, and can do some good astrophotography. I asked him what he recommends people do if they want to start getting into astronomy. Yeah, I mean, it's like any hobby, right? You can get into it fairly inexpensively, or you can spend more than a car, right? <laughs> and everywhere in between. Um, but the, the recommendation that I always give to people is start with a pair of binoculars, astronomical binoculars, 
they're not expensive. They cost maybe $50, um, and they're sort of purpose-built. I'm holding up a pair so you can see them. Um, the people in the podcast won't be able to see them. So they're they're bigger and they're heavier. Uh, Celestron makes a pair of 15 by 70 binoculars that I really like. Um, but you can get even smaller binoculars are fine. And then you just learn the night sky, and you can there's, a, there's 50, 100 objects that you can see just in a pair of binoculars that are wonderful and just the milky way itself you just fall into the stars in the milky way once you've learned the night sky a bit then then i generally recommend people go with a with a dobsonian telescope they call them light buckets um they're a really simple design not a lot of moving parts but it's really just what is the minimum amount of of telescope required to hold a large mirror and a in in place right and um they're very simple to operate and very intuitive you you can you can guide them you just grab the whole telescope and you sort of grab the end of it and swing it around and point it at a new object and then you line it up in the eyepiece and then you look at it and you know like when you a lot of people they go after as the first telescope they go after something that's a lot more automated they go with a like a go-to telescope that will absolutely track the night sky and move to different objects, but they're kind of a pain to set up and, and polar align in the first place so that you can even see your first object. You can spend an hour just trying to make your telescope work. And that is not a fun experience for somebody who is just trying to show their, you know, their friends of uh, Jupiter, You're like, wow, Jupiter's t out tonight. Let's go take a look at it. All right, so give me an hour. I'm almost there. Oh, I can't make the polar align work. So no, you take a Dobsonian, you set the thing down, you grab the front of it, you wrench it around and you look in the eyepiece and there it is. And it is beautiful. But the Dobsonians they don't have a tracking system. I mean, you can get them, but that's kind of ridiculous. Um, you you want to shift to a different kind of telescope if you're going to try to track. And so the Dobsonian, once you've looked at all these bright objects, you run out of stuff to, sh to do in the night sky. And that's where you're going to want to shift to a, a tracking system. So generally, if people are in any way interested in turning this into a hobby, you know, resist the drugstore telescope, those things are garbage. Um, get the, you know, get a, a pair of binoculars, spend your $50. If you're still enjoying yourself, and you really because they're with them, Jupiter is frustratingly small, right? You can't see the moons quite. You have a hard time seeing the, the rings of Saturn. You want a bigger telescope. And so that's when you shift to a Dobsonian, and then you're going to spend, say, $300. And that will keep you busy. And if you're still enjoying yourself, then I give you permission to spend $1,000 and get a proper, you know, entry-level telescope with a with a mount and the ability to track objects in the night sky here i asked him if uh, he had any plans to come out with another book um yeah we've been thinking about that i mean i think part of it is that i really want to showcase more of more astrophotography and <clears throat> and there's such a um, you know i'm just i get a chance to see just such stunning pictures from all these different astrophotographers so i'm trying to think of a way to do that and then the other part one of the things that i i, I wanted a more practical book, one that that had better star charts. And so one of the things that we're thinking about is releasing a separate star chart, something that is like really good for finding your way around the night sky. That's the kind of thing that's perfect to take outside that is 
hardy to the weather, but is easy to use and easy to see when you're using like a red light where you don't want to wreck your night vision and to be able to compare things that you're seeing. And so I think we're trying to figure out what is what would be a follow on uh, you know, whether it's a book or whether it's a, you know, a bunch of sheets that would work as to be able to see the night sky, something that, that would be able to take your observations to the next level and show you what, what's going to be up tonight and what you can see. So, so we're still trying to think that through better ways to feature astrophotography and better ways to, uh, to let people actually go out and practically see stuff in the night sky. Uh, you know, in terms of the book itself, though, I really feel like we we got all the data information in there that we that we wanted to. Uh, it's got, I think it's forward looking for ten years, so or six years. So there's a bunch more stuff. You know, we'll have to do a rewrite by then to update all the new stuff that's that's happening. So uh, that's where we're at right now. It's 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 an exhausting process writing a book, and you know anyone who's done it knows that just writing the book is only half the job. Then you have to go and shamelessly self-promote the book by appearing on everybody's podcast i have no idea what i asked him here everybody this is the the common thing i find everybody loves space nobody hates space um rockets saturn nah you know i mean they have different levels of being interested in it but uh but it's always amazing like even i was i was in a restaurant and i was giving my parents a copy of the book and the waitress came over and was like oh I, where, what's this book what's you know and we're talking about space it, it literally you know all the time when people find out what i do they're they're fascinated and want to know more about space and they've got all kinds of questions so it's a really rewarding industry to be in here i asked him as we were wrapping up where can people find him online uh well the best place is man it's it's our website universe today so just go to universe today.com uh and then of course you can listen to our podcast astronomy cast go to astronomycast.com uh and then of course as i mentioned i feature different photographers over on instagram to search for us on on instagram for universe today and uh and i do an interesting video series on youtube called the guide to space so if people are, are into that you can just search universe today and you'll find it in all the places and then we said our goodbyes. No problem. Thanks for having me. And uh, and uh, I hope, and, and thank you so much for buying the book. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. see the well 74,000 flannel Friday is that just a hashtag or? yeah oh, okay when you type in a hashtag it'll give you like or when you start typing it'll give you suggestions with how many posts there are oh I gotcha okay <laughs> that's perfect they have matching jammies as well. I was telling, I was telling Mike, I was trying to think of something where it's like oh I didn't know blank had a uniform oh but Wow. Well, there's lots of ways you can go, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not, not have them not and have them talk to you friendly anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There's the high road and the low road, Paul. Yeah. I did that at Opti once. I took the very low road. I think like a couple people, like three people, had uh, like jeans and gray sweatshirts on, like long sleeve gray sweatshirts. And I said something about. It. I didn't know Nambla had uniforms now. <laughs> they like, what's that? Nah, not important. That <laughs> yeah. Never mind. <laughs> Man, you know you were diet coke. I go back and forth. I like I like diet I like diet coke in a bottle. Okay.
is if you're drinking it out of a bottle, I like Diet Coke. If you're going to pour it in a glass with ice, I like Diet Pepsi. Huh, all right. I don't know why. Diet Coke out of the fountain's better. Sure. Diet, Pe- Diet Pepsi out of a bottle, I don't like it. But if you pour it in a glass with some ice, yeah. nothing better. It's well, I mean, I, I can easily see how the, the container affects the flavor. I mean, why? <laughs> can you? I, I guess. I think, I don't know, if that's something to do with the carbonation maybe? or maybe. I don't know. Well, well like, maybe I just talked myself into things, Paul. Yeah. I think if the name is on the cup, that enhances the flavor. I think it does too. Because like Pizza Hut, I don't know if they still have it. But like the red plastic cups, it's like Coke on it. Oh yeah, yeah. Freaking nothing. The Coke tasted so much better. Yeah, yeah. In that. Yeah. In that cup. Was that your stomach? What? Yeah. You all right? I will see. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Only time will tell at this point. Only time will tell at this point. (laughs) Yeah, Travis maybe did too. Clean the pipes out. Yeah. Right. Just now, it's kind of. I had a big burrito after that bike ride this morning. Did you? Yeah, you know. A turkey sandwich and some crackers for me. A couple of hard-boiled eggs. It does it to me every time. I didn't didn't eat before the ride, and so after the ride, I'm like, I got to eat. A lot of protein. Not, there was a lot of protein in that. A lot of eggs, mm-hmm. a lot of sausage, a lot of you yeah. know, cheese. That's three or four basic food groups, egg, sure. sausage, and cheese. Yeah. A lot of animal protein, Mike. Sorry. Oh, that's all right. Yeah, that's... Mike eats bean protein. Yeah, quinoa. Yeah, quinoa is one of the few grains of protein. Isn't that right? I think. It's a high protein uh, mm-hmm. it grain. Is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that salad you have is really good. I like it's pretty good. I yeah. like quinoa. Oh, I do too. I feel a little pretentious when I eat it, but well, yeah, <laughs> half the joy. Well, you have <laughs> <That's> <laughs> half the joy. It's the only reason I do. It's the only reason, reason I eat it. it. Makes right. myself feel better than the person next to me. Oh, exactly. Well, you did oh, you hear you were here and I uh, told the quinoa story, but you did you hear that? I don't remember what episode that was. Mm-mm. Remember the quinoa story? I think so. Yeah, I remember you talking about quinoa. I, I felt, yeah, I was like, I, I don't know if I'm going to tell this. I'm kind of exposing myself and feel vulnerable, but I told it. What was, was the big boy? What was it again? Uh, you know, ring or is it ring? No, ringworm. Pinworms. Okay. Remember? Like that's a common thing that kids get is pinworms. You heard of them? Mm-hmm. Really? No. I'm going to have to tell this again. Yeah. Let's hear it. All right. Should be a lot better than last time. I hope. I don't know. <laughs> So a pinworm, it's, yeah. I guess it's a fairly common parasite that children get. <clears throat> and kids the, playing in the pigsty, or uh, no? I mean, it's just kids being kids. You know, they're just not dirt. You can pick it up from the outside or whatever. I guess. Well, the way you know about it is your kid comes up and it's like my butt itches, and it's like okay, if that happens. I can't believe nobody's heard of this. Like I thought this was like super common. I don't know where I hang out. Uh, my butt itches a lot, but... Uh, All right. Well, so Maybe but, on your side of Carlin Road. <laughs> <laughs> my side of the tracks? <laughs> 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 um, so what you get... Over you, in Carlin Heights. Carlin yeah. Heights. Yeah. Not such a problem. No. Uptown Carlin. Uptown. <laughs> so what, what you got to do is you got to take a flashlight and you got to look. Spread them and look. And you can see them. Ugh. So... <laughs> That's probably why I haven't heard of it. Most people aren't like, well, I found the pinworms. No? Yeah. All right. Maybe it's a southern thing. I don't know. Which, not to go on a tangent, but apparently the stigma of the lazy, stupid southerner came from, uh, in the 19th century, it's estimated like up to 30% of the southern population had ringworm. And that's a symptom. It's the lethargy. And, really? Yeah. And... Huh. Because they likely were, story. Is this connected to quinoa? <laughs> uh, I'm gonna get there. Okay, okay. back to pinworms. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm in the shower one day. I'm like, man, I got monkey butt, something fierce. 
this is this is this is at the end of an episode. I don't remember which one it was. Oh, I remember this. Yeah, one. it's like man, and it's not like your typical run of the mill. I mean, this is bad. Like I'm uncomfortable and starting to get concerned. And so, so you know, I got the washcloth and I just start digging because it's like man, something's going on. I almost feel something move, right? And I pull the washcloth away, and I see little, like, light beige coils. Clearly Ben Mark. I'm like, what the hell is this? And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and I realize I had quinoa the night before. There you go. It was quinoa that just got through my digestive tract and was irritating. Irritating. Can you sell that at the Christmas story next or Christmas party next year? <laughs> yeah, Mike lets me get yes. it. Yeah. After your speech, Paul's got some Paul's, Paul's got something Paul's else to got talk a about. Funny story. Mm-hmm. In case you missed it twice on the twice. podcast. Uh, you oh, got a funny good story. old Paul yeah. Quinoa Campana. Yeah. There is that my nickname now. I think it's so. Quinoa. Hey, quinoa. It's delicious though. Oh, that's pretty delicious. I don't know about the second time, but it's delicious yeah. the first time. I feel like this is a really lame version of Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, yes. Oh. It's okay. very Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> All right, well, let's, get a, let's get an intro down. And then, uh, yeah, then I can just go do that. Um, yeah. I have to make sure the kids are locked away so they don't get any. Oh, no. Get them in there. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, why not? Piece of son of a bitch. They don't know how to cut. They don't know how to cuss. Oh my god. Probably. Oh yeah. I Nothing's cuter fixed. than kids swearing. Yeah. Well, yeah. it'll help raise. Sometimes. So this is a kid swearing, but the grady had to go, and so they do show and share, show and tell, you know. And mm-hmm. they bring in. Uh, I told you. I told Travis this. So um, they'll they'll bring something in, whatever toy, whatever they want to bring in for show and share. Mm-hmm. But the way they do it is before they show everybody. You know, they give two hints, and then the class gets three guesses. They oh, okay. raise their hand. So here he says, "I know what my hints are for my show and chair." Like, oh yeah, like uh, it swims and it's flexible. Okay, I can see where this is going. I think he said, "Well, okay, what is it? What are you going to bring?" He's like, "My mom." Mm. <laughs> That was not where I was thinking that was No, swims and it's flexible. My mom. I was like, that's the defining characteristics of your mother. Swims. It swims. That's flexible. I've seen her do bendy things, and sure. I've seen her float in water. Yeah, the jo- her joints work. Her joints work, so... and uh, she floats in water. And this is not mo- most kids. First of all, a don't bring their mother for showing no. chair. <laughs> you know, you think I'm gonna throw him a curve. I'm throw him a curve. <laughs> throw him a curveball. I'm tired of these kids guessing this stuff. Kids bringing in toys. I'm bringing in a wow. human. I'm bringing in a human. And my mom's going to be the easiest one to talk into. That's right. Yeah. No, that's true. Wow, that's... And two irrefutably true hands. Yeah. yeah. You're right, you're right. It's nuts. Will the other night was like, you wanted to watch the news. You're like, you're seven. What do you care? It's all fake anyway. Yeah, that's true. Did you tell fake, that? fake news. You want to watch real news or fake news? So fake news, Will. <laughs> fake news. So fake news. Huge mistake. Huge. And then, like, for his bedtime story last night, Sue's like, you know, what do you want to read? This, 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 whatever. And he's like, No. He's like, history. A history book. And we have a book on, like, shipwrecks of the Great, uh, Great Lakes. And he's like, yeah. So she read the preface from that to him for his bedtime story. 
Okay. Hey. He's making an effort. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. He's trying to better himself. Yeah. And, you know, I feel you're kind of squashing it a little bit, Paul. Trying to please me? That's not going to happen. I think you're projecting. <laughs> that's not, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Am I projecting some of my, my yeah. childhood angst? I think, I think you are. I didn't measure up, kid. Neither will you. <laughs> He's never going to fly if you keep clipping his wings like oh. this. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. oh. That's a quote of the day right there. Did you get that from Ramtha? I just made it up. But <laughs> That's really good. Holy shit. What a guilt trip, man. We can I, can, yeah, I, come, uh, can I come sleep at your house after I use that one on my wife sometime? <laughs> yeah, right? I'm going to need a night or two, kids and I'll she'll probably let me back in. Kids are never going to fly. Yes. On their wings. Maybe. Yeah. How's she going to fly if you keep clipping her wings? You see the lightning flash. It's like, it's clear. Don't worry, I already made arrangements with Travis. (laughs) (laughs) I got a place to stay. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. (laughs) Oh, man. Ooh. Travis, someone take us to the guilt trip. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It's like mother in law level guilt tripping. It kind of is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's really well done. (sighs) 